So with that, um, again, it's my joy to, to dive into God's word th- this morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, we're going to be finishing up next week this series on the life of Abraham. This field guide to loving God is what we've entitled it, where Abraham is helping us navigate and sort through what does it look like to engage in the thing that is most important. The most important thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so Abraham is helping us see that both in the things that he does well, sort of things to emulate and like, oh yeah, way to go, Abraham. And then increasingly also in things you're like, ooh, nope, that was the wrong call. He went the wrong direction. He rebelled. He missed the mark. He sinned. And what we see though is God's faithful love and pursuit of Abraham. And that motivates us and encourages us that, oh, wow, if God can use a messed up, broken person like Abraham, he can use you and he can use me. And so with that, this morning, we're going to be in the end of Genesis 21. So I encourage you to get a Bible out if you brought one to follow along, verses 22 to 34. There are Bibles in the back of the pews. You can grab one of those. You can also go to cplife.church on your phone, click the image that says sermon notes, and you can follow along. The last thing you need is like my thoughts, my opinion, my hot take on whatever, right? Like we need to hear from God himself, and thank goodness he speaks to us through his word. And so we are picking up a story where Abraham had been promised a son, all right? And that happened at the beginning of chapter 21. Abraham is 100, all right? His wife is 90, and miraculously, they've got this infant at home that they are caring for. And now Abraham is going to have an interaction with a king in the area named Abimelech, who we have seen before, uh, back a couple of chapters. Now there's this other interaction. I'm going to read this. We'll make our way through it. As you're reading it or you hear it read this morning, you might be thinking, how in the world does this apply to my life living in this time in this place? But by God's grace, praying that his spirit would illuminate our minds and our thinking and our hearts that we might see, oh, this is immensely practical to what we are dealing with, even if some of the particulars are different. So again, Genesis 21, verses 22 to 34. This is God's word for us this morning. It says, at that time, Abimelech, accompanied by Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. So swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or with my children and descendants. As I have been loyal to you, so you will be loyal to me and to the country where you are a resident alien. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech replied, I don't know who did this thing. You didn't report anything to me, so I hadn't heard about it until today. Abraham took flocks and herds, and he gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham separated seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech said to Abraham, why have you separated these seven ewe lambs? And he replied, you are to accept the seven ewe lambs from me so that this act will serve as my witness that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, which you'll see means well of oath or the seven wells, because it was there that the two of them swore an oath. And after they had made a covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, left and returned to the land of the Philistines. Verse 33. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham lived as an alien in the land of the Philistines for many days. 
So this is God's word for us this morning. And again, as you read through that and you look at some of the particulars, you might be thinking, all right, I don't interact with kings. No one's asking to make a covenant uh, with me in that that sense. Um, I don't have a well that I'm fighting over unless you and your neighbors are arguing over something, maybe. But the reality is we can look at this and think, what does this have to do with your life and my life? But there's something significant here that we have to pay attention to at the very end, all right? At the very end, in verse 34 of this, it's verse 34 of this section here, it says, Abraham lived as an alien or an exile, a sojourner, a stranger, an outcast, right? In the land of the Philistines for many days. And so here's a question that I think this text invites us to consider, asks us to consider, that will help shape and form who we are being called to be as the church. Because throughout the scriptures, one of the things that you will see is that God, as he's doing with Abraham, as he's raising up a people, and yet part of the people that God is forming, even as we talk about being formed together as this church community and new people joining this church, one of the things that we experience over and over again is that there's this calling, all right, as a family of God, and yet there's this sense of displacement. There's this sense of not fitting in in the the world. There's this sense where we are sojourners, or a way to say it, like resident aliens, like this is not our home. Now, we'll see in this text, we're not called to just kick back then and say, well, whatever happens, happens. Like we are called to be a blessing. But throughout the scriptures, we see time and time again, God raising up a particular people, a remnant of people. It's why Peter, when he's writing to the early church, after Jesus has accomplished all that he has, right? He's died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He's commissioned his church. The Holy Spirit has come. But there is persecution. There's trial. People misunderstand the church. The church is being maligned. There's all these things taking place. And Peter would write to a group And he would refer to them as exiles. He's trying to press in, like, there's this identity as the church of a people that you don't actually fit in. And if you perfectly fit in with the world, that should be like the light on your dashboard going off saying, something's not right. Like, you and I, by God's design, actually are outsiders who are meant to be a blessing. And so we feel this, right? I believe we should feel this, that the calling of the church is to be this counterculture of people that live in the world, that we inhabit the same spaces, and yet we operate differently. We operate according to the gospel. We're people that are demonstrations of God's grace and mercy. And so I want to ask this question this morning. Abraham lived as an alien. How do we not just survive in this time and place that God has put us, but how do we, and how does this text, these few verses we'll look at, showcase for us through this interaction, this ancient interaction between Abraham and Abimelech, what it looks like to thrive as outsiders. And I'm not saying we love that feeling of outsiders. There's difficulty with that, right? To some, it calls to mind that that time of, you know, walking into a new school and not knowing where to go for a particular class or who you're going to sit with at lunch or maybe a first day on the job and you're just feeling out of sorts or you showed up to a a play group you got invited to with your kids and you're wondering, like, will this group accept me? I mean, there's all these insecurities that we have. 
We're new to a place. I think of a time, you know, being the Floridian up in the north woods of Wisconsin, pulling out in our rental car, Heather and I, in the middle of February, lots of snow around, leaving Walmart, because that's the place to be, all right, and leaving the Walmart and turning out and realizing, oh, I'm not on the road, I'm on the snowmobile trail, all right, um, and realizing as I'm taking the rental car down the snowmobile path and I'm getting very weird waves from the men on the snowmobiles, right, um, that, oh, like, I've done something wrong. You are very aware this hyper-awareness of like, oh, I don't fit in here. Like, I don't know the rules. I don't know how to operate. And that sense can be overwhelming when we think about it as our calling as the church. And yet what we see here, I want to encourage you. We're going to look at three things this morning briefly about our calling to move from just surviving as outsiders but to thriving. I think we need to remember the presence of God that is with us We need to be people that would pursue peace and people that engage in worship. Like we prioritize the praise and worship of God. So I want to put these three things before us this morning. Look at that and ask, be asking God to reveal to you, how might this help me to live in your, where God has placed you? Like your neighborhood, your school, your workplace. How do you thrive as an outsider? And so look back with me at verses 22 to 24. It says, at that time, Abimelech, accompanied by Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, he says these words, God is with you in everything you do. So swear to me by God here and now, like let's not waste any time, that you will not break an agreement with me or with my children and descendants. Can we just stop and acknowledge for one here? We're not given a ton of detail other than earlier we learned that Abimelech, all right, he's the king of that area. He's powerful enough that he's got another man with him, his right-hand man, Phicol, who is the commander of the army. This man would have had power and wealth and influence, all right? He was the man in that part of the world at that time and that place. And then do you realize what's being showcased here? Abraham, who a little bit earlier in the story, when he interacted with Abimelech, had lied and said, well, Sarah's my sister, and Abimelech had taken Sarah. This man who'd messed up in a big time way at this point, what is being showcased here very clearly is the weaker person is asking the stronger one for blessing. And the weaker one is not Abraham. Now, that's not in his own strength. This is a testament to God's grace that God has raised this man up. He's with him. He's empowered him. That doesn't mean he's never going to mess up, but God is clearly with him. And so the fact that this pagan king is literally reaching out and saying, hey, I want to form a treaty. Will you make a promise, not just to me, but to my kids and their descendants? Like there's something about Abraham that is winsome to this man who believes nothing of what Abraham believes. And he says it right there. He says, God is with you in everything that you do. Our calling, if we're going to live as outsiders and thrive in this world, is to start with this. Remember the presence and the power of God that is with you, friends. What was true of Abraham, let me put this before you, is even more remarkable and more true for you here this morning if you are a follower of Jesus. It's not just that God is around you sometimes or that God knows about what's going on in your life, all right, or that God is accompanying you. Like there's something even more significant for those of us that live on the other side of the cross and resurrection. Here's what 1 John says in chapter 4, verse 4. He says this, you are from God, so remember this, little children, 
and you have conquered them. And he's speaking of those that were false teachings, those that would persecute the church, all of this. Because, now here's this line, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So it's communicating someone has taken up residence in your life and it's greater than the one who's in the world. Well, who's the one in the world? The enemy of God, Satan, the devil. And whoever's taken up residence in you, he's saying, is more powerful than that. Do you believe that? Do you operate from that perspective? If you're like, well, who is this, right? Like Paul doesn't leave it a mystery. He says in Colossians 1:27, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles. So his hope, the intention of God has always been that the Jews would be a blessing to the whole world, all right? This is what Abraham's calling is, to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, like of this plan of salvation that God has been working. Here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like of all the things that we could give time and attention to and hope in, what he's telling us is this, God is in you. He's taken up residence in you. And so as John said, the one who is in you, and then as Paul would write, which is Christ in you. You're a follower of Jesus this morning? Imperfect, stumbling, missing the mark, sinful, rebellious still. Yes, all of those things. And yet, if you have been marked by God's grace, there is this promise that Abraham all right, who had God with him, could only dreamed of, is like, oh my goodness, it's even better for us. Christ in you. And then we think about the calling that we have. Like all of what's taking place here in Genesis 21 and these concluding verses is tied to the overall call when God said, all right, Abram, I'm gonna make you into a great nation even though your wife is barren. I'm going to give you land, even though you're going to be this nomadic sojourner, this exile, this resident alien. Just trust me. And once I make you into a great nation where your descendants outnumber the the, the stars in the sky or the dust on the ground, and I give you the promised land, and I restore and renew and I work through you, your calling is to be a blessing to all the nations. So there's always been this missional thrust. There's always been this mission that we are called as people, exiles, sojourners, aliens. You're like, man, I don't fit in in this world. Yeah, that's partly by God's design. And yet, we're not to retreat from the world, but rather, we're to engage. Jesus, right before he gets ready to ascend into heaven, he gathers his disciples, right? And he speaks a word to them. He commissions them. And sometimes we can read this, I think, through a very legalistic lens as we talk about the Great Commission. And we get so caught up in the go and forget that it's a gospel commission. It centers on the gospel, on the person or work of Jesus. That's the message we proclaim. That's the message that encourages us and strengthens us. That's what people get baptized into. And it tell, Jesus says this in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples. Like the calling that was given to Abraham is now being given to us. Go make disciples of all nations, which means for some, you're gonna have to leave your place of comfort so that all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, and here's this theme again, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So if we're going to thrive as outsiders in this world, 
in this time and place when God, where God has strategically, intentionally put you. Don't forget that. I know we've talked about this over the last couple of years, but somehow in God's sovereign plan and goodness, looking through time, right? However he sets this up, knowing there'd be a global pandemic for a couple of years, right? He picked you to live during this time. And he picked you to be part of his church. And he picked you to bear witness. And he has promised that he is with you and that he's literally taken up residence in you. And so this pagan king sees Abraham's like, oh, God is clearly with you. Friends, it is so much better for us. And so let me ask you, do you believe this? Like if we're gonna be the church God has called us to be, let's start here. Do you remember the presence, the very power of God that is with you? And if I'm honest, I'm like, oh yeah, I believe that. And I believe these verses are true that I read to you a moment ago, sure. But I know there's lots of unbelief beneath the surface. Because if I really believe this, it would shape my life. It would shape your life in ways where sometimes we get fearful and we don't step into places. As we're gonna see here in a moment, Abraham becomes this active peacemaker. And sometimes we wanna avoid. Sometimes I want to avoid. There's this courage and this boldness that comes from realizing, oh, like God is with me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. What if we really embraced that? What if we really woke up each day being reminded of that truth? Like, how might that change your outlook, your perspective as we go along? And so from there, as we look at verses 25 to 32 for a moment, the first key, I would say, to living as an outsider and thriving is that we would remember the presence of God. But then there's this call, then, to pursue peace, all right? And so as we look at verses you know, 25, they're going to make a covenant, and then Abraham, it says, complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech's, you know, well, I didn't know that this thing had been done. You didn't say anything. And then Abraham takes these flocks and he, he presents this particular gift. Now, what's really fascinating here, and I think we can miss the significance of this because we don't generally, you know, wake up thinking like, oh, how am I going to get water today? But in that time and place, I mean, this is a significant thing. And it's something that, like, if you're battling, people would battle over wells. I mean, the source of water, not only for you and your family, the people in your household, but for all your animals, right? I mean, so this was crucial. And so there's this opportunity here. Now, I thought this was interesting, though, because I hear it. It's like Abraham complained. Like, he's just, yeah, he's this 100-year-old man. He's just like, those, that young Abimelech, he probably did, right? I don't know how, he, how it's going, but like, he, that's kind of how I picture it. But then I was reading this commentary by Bruce Waltke, who's this Hebrew scholar, and he said, really what this word is getting at, and you see it here, is to determine what is right. So Abraham's making an assessment of things. What's taking place here is, yeah, there's been this conflict, and yet Abimelech's come to him and said, all right, Abraham, you know, make this pact with me. Make this covenant. Can we you know, coexist in this? Abraham is in the position of, of power. And yet what do you see him doing? He proactively goes and makes peace. He's like, hey, here's this thing. It's something that's not right. One of the things we've seen in this series is what does it look like to love God? One thing is to seek mishpat, a right ordering, right? To do what's right and to set things right. 
I love the fact that what we see here from Abraham, who's showcasing for us, how do you live as an outsider in a way where you thrive and you actually bless the community, is when you see the places of brokenness, when you see something that's not right, rather than retreating or just going to the place of comfort or kicking back, you proactively move towards the chaos and the conflict to be an agent of peace. And he does it at his own cost. If this is true that he dug the well, he incurred that expense, and somebody has seized it, he literally is buying it back from them, right? Like, it's just, it's kind of crazy. I remember years ago, my wife's bike got stolen. The, the police eventually found it at the pawn shop. And they're like, well, you can leave it here for now, um, and it'll probably be months before you can get it back, or you can buy it from the pawn shop. I'm like, wow, we're buying back the stolen bike. So we bought the bike, all right? Um, and I think eventually we got some money back. But like, in that moment, it's like, wait, what? This is what Abraham functionally is doing. And he's not digging his heels in. He's not trying to make a point. He's willing to die to self so that there can be peace. Think about that. He's being a blessing. What if the church was known not as a group of people that are in it for themselves, but rather were intentionally moving towards the place of the brokenness and chaos and being agents of peace? This is why Jesus, when he gets up and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew 5, and there's a series of beatitudes, right? They all begin, blessed are, and it kind of gives this description. We get to this one that says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. It's very key that we understand it doesn't say blessed are those who keep the peace. I mean, there's some skill involved in that, but it's a lot easier to be a peacekeeper than a peacemaker. Peacekeeper sometimes might mean simply, hey, I'm not going to pour gasoline on that fire. I'm going to keep the inflammatory comment to myself, right? And sure, that's a good thing. But a peacemaker is you're intentionally moving in. You're going to take some hits. You're willing to do this because you want to see a community, a family, a system, some structure, like flourish. I believe that's what he does. But did you notice as well? The peacemakers are called the sons of God. Maybe a way to think about it, this, think about it is asking yourself this diagnostic question, do you resemble your father? Like, it says to be a son of God. Well, it's clear that God himself is a peacemaker, that he actively is working towards peace, that Jesus is our peace, that Jesus actively does this. So we want to be described as his children I mean, this might seem kind of weird, but literally, apparently, like the paternity test of like, is God your father, right? Is like, are you a peacemaker? Like that's some of the language here of like, oh, do I belong? Is he my father? Will you ask yourself, like, am I a peacemaker? And that's what we see happening here. I love how the Proverbs say it in Proverbs 16, uh, which is spelled incorrectly on there, not Proverbs, but anyway, uh, Proverbs 16, 7, when a person's ways, please, I can't believe who made these slides other than me, but anyway, um, when a person's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Interesting, huh? It's going to be enemies, there's going to be difficulty, you're going to be misunderstood individually, but also collectively as the church. But when we're seeking to honor the Lord, it's interesting. Even enemies want to be at peace with him. Abimelech's like, Abraham, come on, I, I want the blessing. What if the church had such a reputation that we were a blessing and active peacemakers? 
that though we don't all think the same and believe the same or vote the same or any of these things, that there is this unity that we have in the gospel. And there's something winsome and compelling about that, that people, even if they don't yet believe what we believe, are drawn to it. Like that's our calling. The late pastor and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way in regards to being peacemakers. He says, the peacemaker is one who is not always looking at everything in terms of the effect it has upon himself. Now is not, he says, now is not that the whole trouble with us by nature? We look at everything as it affects us. Quote, what is the reaction upon me? What is this going to mean to me? And the moment we think like that, there is of necessity war because everybody else is doing the same thing. I think he's spot on with that. Oh, we begin acting this way? I act this way, you act this way? Like we look out for number one, we look out for self, the rest of the world does this. We're all bent towards self. That's the natural disposition. It's like, yeah, chaos, war, drama, right? I mean, it's all coming for you. He continues, he says, that is the explanation of all the quarreling and discord. Everybody looks at it from the self-centered point of view. Is this fair to me? Am I having my rights and dues? They are not interested in the causes they should be serving or the great thing that brings them all together, this church and society, organization. He's saying, we've been called and invited into something far greater than the service of self. It's to serve other people, to be a blessing, to look at the places in the world where something's not yet right and say, hey, has God called me to be part of the answer to this prayer? Like, it's one thing to recognize that something's broken, but then to say, Lord, how do you want to use me? Now, that doesn't mean you take it on as like, you're gonna save the world and do everything. It's like, yeah, there's one savior, it's Jesus, just calm down, right? But at, the, at another level, there are things convictionally that God will bring before you, and you have to ask, like, oh, what do you want me to do with this? And how might we together as a community engage in this? So to thrive as outsiders, as aliens, as sojourners, we gotta remember the presence of God, that God is with you, that God has taken up residence in you, that allows you, that motivates you, motivates me, motivates us as the church to pursue peace, to pursue reconciliation, to move toward that at great cost to ourselves, like it cost Abraham, and that's okay, because he knows at the end of the day, God is with me. It doesn't. So what? I had to give away a, you know, a few extra sheep. No big deal, right? Like He's willing to do that. And then what I think is, we see here in these last couple of verses, this prioritizing of praise, it erupts in just worship. Like What we're doing here really does matter, not just for our own encouragement, but living all of life, both on a Sunday morning as the church gathered, but as the Apostle Paul would say, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, to do all to the glory of God, like this heart that is bent towards praise and worship of God, to bear witness to God's grace and provision, the world is in desperate need of seeing rightly ordered worship and a group of people committed not just to themselves in this time period, but beyond and for the generations. 
So look what Abraham does, all right? In verse 33, it says these words. It says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And then verse 34 is where we started. He lived as an alien in the land of the Philistines for many days. So in this last section, if we're going to be faithful witnesses, we're going to thrive as outsiders, all right? We remember our identity. We remember that God's with us. We're seeking to bring justice and mishpat, seeking to bring peace. But at the end of the day, what we should center on is this worship of God. It says he called on the name of the Lord, and then he names him for us as the everlasting God, that God is unchanging, that he is faithful when we are faithless. There's nothing about God that he doesn't wake up one day and he's like, ah, I don't know, I'm not sure I'm with these people anymore. Like he is with us. He's taken residence inside of us. He is not going to abandon us. We are not going to be left. He has adopted us as his sons and daughters. Like we are with him forever if you are in Christ. Like there's a confidence there. And Abraham is resting in this fact. Like we're gonna see next week, like it's a resting in this this praise and worship of all that God has done that is going to allow him, the, give him the resources to even deal with God saying, I need you to go and sacrifice your one and only son, Isaac. Like what we have here is a glad response to the grace that he has received. And now what's fascinating, all right, for just a couple of minutes, it says this, he planted a tamarisk tree. We'll talk about the tamarisk part in just a moment, but just the tree in general, again, this is not here by happenstance. It's not like Moses writing this. I don't know, I'll just throw this detail in there, right? He's not on Grammarly and it's saying, well, add this, it'll be a little more interesting if you add this word to it, right? He's literally telling us, hey, this detail matters because throughout the story so far, in Genesis 12, in Genesis 13, in Genesis 14, in Genesis 18, there are significant moments that happen under a tree, around a tree, a tree's not been planted yet, but in all of these things, God is communing with Abraham. There's times where Abraham is under a tree and people run to him and say, this is what has happened to Lot. And he's sitting there under this place of like blessing and now people are running to him so that he can go out and be a blessing. Like, there's all these significant things that are taking place. And again, I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's reading into it too much. It's this, this significant thing of saying, oh, be reminded of God and his desire to get us back to Eden. And he plants this tree. But what's fascinating, right? He has the sun now, but does he have the promised land? No. I heard one writer say it this way. Imagine this. Imagine that you go home this afternoon and you decide to you swing through Home Depot or Lowe's and you buy a nice tree and then you go into your neighbor's yard and they look out their front window and see you digging a giant hole in their front yard and you're planting a tree. Maybe they would welcome it because they're like, oh, cool, you're giving me a tree. But they, it also, I think, it would be fair for them to be like, hey, dude, what are, you, what are you doing? Like, this is my yard, right? Like, didn't you see the sign that says keep off my lawn? That doesn't mean like dig a hole in it, right? Like, we would think it's kind of odd. Because you plant a tree on your own property. That's what you do. So at one level, Abraham, in planting this tree, is also declaring, 
Lord, you've promised to give this to me. You have been faithful. You are the everlasting God. And I am planting this tree as this reminder of your past faithfulness and how you are going to continue to be faithful because this tree will be here for the generations. Long after I'm gone, this tree will remain and it is bearing witness to the fact that what you said would happen is actually going to come true. And then you actually learn a little bit about the detail about a tamarisk tree that apparently takes 400 years to mature fully. It's like, wow, that's a long time. And once it matures, it is able to thrive and survive in this arid climate, this hot desert that would have been the southern portion of what becomes the promised land. And apparently at nighttime, all right, it it takes in some of the moisture. And then throughout the day, as somebody might sit under it, it emits a bit of cool moisture. It's like the air conditioning of the ancient world, right? Like apparently all of these things are true. And it's this interesting picture that's here of Abraham just responding in praise, a declaration as well. Lord, you said you were going to do this and you are actually going to come through. And it's then this picture of something that would last for the generations. Maybe a way to think about it is this. Do you have the long view in mind? Like if we think about our calling as the church, living as outsiders, this act here by Abraham is a reminder that he's not just thinking about himself. He's thinking about Isaac and Isaac's kids and the grandkids and down through the generations. This tree that represents God's faithfulness, this tree that very practically will be a blessing to others to provide shade, but also a marker of time spent like in the presence of God, the significance that we see throughout his story. And so the calling I mean, maybe you're going to go plant a tree. Then fine, go for it, right? But the heart behind it is, do you recognize God's faithfulness? Are you praising him for past faithfulness? And are you praising him for future faithfulness, this confidence that he is the everlasting God? Do you have, and do I have a long view towards what God is doing? Because it is easy, isn't it, to get overwhelmed, I think, in this moment we live in? It's easy I think to believe the lie, oh man, things are way worse now than they've ever been. Like every generation says that, right? How about this? It's just been bad for a long time, right? And God has been faithful and good throughout it all. And he's gonna continue to be that way. And our call is to be a faithful witness. Now, let's close with this. As we see that though, this could You could look at this and be like, yep, Abraham's the hero. Let's be like Abraham. But we know he's not the hero. It's all God's grace. He messed up with Abimelech and his his wife Sarah not too long ago. And now we hear, like, the tables have turned and Abraham is seemingly doing the right thing. But friends, all of this, if we're going to live as the outsiders, as exiles, to thrive in that, here's what we need to see in closing, the outsider that we actually need. You think about Jesus you think through these categories of presence and peace and praise. Let me just put this before you. The outsider we need, as Matthew 27 tells us, records Jesus' words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very presence of God in flesh and blood. God the Son, who'd known nothing but perfect communion with this heavenly Father, is cast out so that we could be brought in. When we remember the presence, we also remember what it cost Jesus. 
He was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. We would not be abandoned, but we would be adopted as his sons and daughters. We think about the peace that we're called to be about, yes, but it's only possible because of what Christ has done for us, as Isaiah 53 says. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace. That was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And then, in a fascinating account, we think about praise. Friends, the ultimate worship leader is the Lord Jesus himself. Which we're like, well, we sing praise to Jesus. How is he the worship leader? He's both. Like in Romans 15, it says this, therefore, welcome one another just as Christ also welcomed you. We think about this call to praise. To the glory of God, for I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised to the Jew on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. All right, seeing all that. And then there's this quote. Paul quotes the psalmist. He quotes the Psalm of David in Psalm 18, verse 49. He says this, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing praises to your name. This is what King David is doing. But all of this points to the true king that would one day come. The true king is Jesus. And it's Jesus. Like Paul is saying, listen, this is what is true of Jesus, that he will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praise to your name. That Jesus is leading vocally and instrumentally, and he's taking up this mantle, and he's saying, I am the worship leader. You're called to worship, yes. You're called to bear witness. You're called to have this worship of God that'll be winsome to the community, but it all flows from him. The pressure is off. Like He is the worship leader. Tony Ranke from Desiring God said it this way. We'll close with this. Behind the corporate worship in our local church, behind the global worship of the nations is our mediator, our brother, the perfect worshiper, and our perfect worship leader. We are united to Christ, and in him all our worship is brought together into one global choir to the praise of the Father. So we're invited. We get to respond in glad worship. So let me pray for us as we continue in our service. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, your kindness, your grace. Help us to live faithfully as outsiders, as exiles, as strangers in this land. And by your grace, please use us to bear witness, to sing your praise. May we have and be part of a generational impact God, would we have a gospel legacy for your glory and for our joy. Receive our praise now as we continue to respond and worship, we pray in Christ's name, amen.